Welcome to episode 26 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, A Good Foundation with Horses with Dr. Shelley Appleton. Dr. Shelley Appleton has a doctorate in human learning and combines this with an extensive knowledge of working with horses. She is a highly skilled horse trainer who can help you solve your frustrations with your horse. Shelley combines understanding of humans and a lifetime of exposure with horses to provide effective and encouraging coaching to help both horse and rider become more skilled, competent, and confident. Shelley can help remove the frustration and fear out of owning and riding horses and increase your enjoyment. She teaches riders how to support their horse to be calm, willing, and confident. In this episode, we discuss the two horses that change Shelley's direction with training horses, the story of how Shelley made her horse's mouth bleed and how that was a catalyst for change, how Shelley teaches her students to put a foundation on their horses, the importance and science behind changing beliefs when teaching humans about training horses, what happens to your horse's coping mechanism when your horse's basic needs are not satisfied, why a domesticated horse will always live with a certain degree of stress, Shelley's can of worms on the positive and negative reinforcement debate, the myth behind negative reinforcement being fear-based, why Shelley thinks that negative reinforcement actually gives the horse a greater sense of autonomy. I know a lot of people are going to be interested in this. Debunking the fear theory with horses, how treats can actually trigger the same amount of angst as a whip can. We speak about contact versus a soft feel, who inspires her and her favorite resources in horses and self-development, her current fascination of her dynamics in performance horses, what a 10-year-old taught her about riding horses, and Shelley's view on calming signals like yawning, licking and chewing, etc., plus so much more. Shelley is a boss. I have a lot of respect for her. She is highly educated, she's passionate, and she knows what she's talking about and has a really positive impact on the horse community, educating humans how to put a good foundation on their horses. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a happy, light, and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship, and now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication, so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing partnership with your horse. Want to find out my horse training philosophy? Access the free connection and communication mini course at amaliadempsey.com. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Welcome, Shelley, to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thanks for being here. Nah, thanks, Amalia. It's so lovely to see you and speak to you. Yes, I'm really <laughs> excited to do this interview. I know we had a chat earlier about a lot of interesting horse topics, so yeah. I was super excited to finally get you on the podcast. So here we are, and I'd like yes. to know, first up, can you tell us a little bit about your horsemanship journey to date, when you got into horses and what has led to where you are today? Okay. So I got into horses when I was a child. Um, I was always been obsessed by horses. I think every horse person kind of has like a similar story. Um, and then, so I rode horses throughout my childhood. And then in my last final years at school, uh, my horse uh, died and I was very, very hard broken but it was kind of not that it was good but it was at a time where I could then shift my focus to my schoolwork and also I really respected the amount of like effort that my parents went into like my mum went back to work so I could have a horse you know like that's pretty special so I worked really hard at school and then I um 
and then I worked really hard at university and then I worked for a number of a couple of years to save up money um just before I bought a horse though I did the right thing and I went and leased a horse and I rode that horse every day for a year so I leased this 21 year old Arab <laughs> and when I got him he looked 21 and then after a year he looked amazing <laughs> like I had got him so fit and then I went and had a look and I and I bought you know, I wanted to buy a flash horse, you know, so, and, and back then I, you know, I was so naive anyway. Um, I went and did the most stupid thing and bought a horse sight unseen um, because why would you need to see it? <laughs> you know, if it looked good on paper and looked good on video, like why not? Um, so yeah, I went and bought this horse sight unseen. I went and, spot, uh, went and bought this very expensive young warm blood. And then he proceeded to scare the hell out of me for seven years. Um, but in that time, I also bought another uh, little horse, like a, a little Walsh cob, uh, and I had a lot of fun on him. So I had, um, you know, warm, beautiful, warm blood that scared the hell out of me over there. Like I'd fall off him every month. Like I didn't stop riding him. Like I put my big girl's panties on and I cowgirled up and I rode him, but he would just like, and to me back then I labeled him sensitive. And because I'm a pharmacist, I tried to diagnose his problem regularly. So I even did a whole entire bone therapy course just to try, you know, if I could relax him, you know, and that would help him. And, you know, I even had him smelling patchouli and lavender before I got on him. And like, it was all just this, I went down every single crazy rabbit hole. And I think that's why I've got so much patience for people because it's just like, no, I've done crazier things than most people. So, and then what happened? I had a lot of fun on this little horse and, um, like he did really well in competition and stuff like that in pony dressage. And then, I, some changes happened in my life and I, I met a guy that was a really good horseman. So he was a farrier, but it was a really good horseman. And we got together and, you know, he offered to ride my warm blood and I was quite sure that he was going to get killed because he just rode, you know, those little quiet quarter horses, you know, and, and like I rode dressage and warm bloods and it was different. Right. Anyway, I never forget we're walking down to the arena and he was a he was a really good teacher and he's been a really good influence in my life with my horses. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be sitting here. But he never just gave you advice. He just waited. Like he was a bit like Yoda. You know, he just like sit back and wait for you to ask him. You know, he was a good, a really, he's, he is an exceptional horseman, right? I'm walking down the arena and um, and I'm giving him the layout of where this horse spooked, right? Because <laughs> what he did, the thing that he did, right? he'd spook and spin. So he'd just spin. So I never got necessarily very hurt when I fell off him um, because he was so low to the ground in the spin because he was so athletic. I just kind of slip off the offside, right? So he just spin me off every single time. And it was just so fast because he was so athletic. So anyway, I'm giving him the layout of the arena because at that stage I could only ride him down the like right down the bottom of my arena. I actually had a perfect 20 meter circle like dug into the end of my arena so I'm giving him all like he spooks at that bush and he doesn't like going up there and he's scared of that corner over there. And so, you know, the safest places, because I was quite sure this guy was going to die when he rode this horse. Anyway, he, um, he just looked at me as if I was a bit crazy and he goes, he said something like, why are you telling me this or, or whatever? And I go, well, don't you want to know where he spooks? And he just went, look, well, <clears throat> I'll deal with that if he spooks. Right. And I was just like, oh man, this guy is seriously going to die. 
<laughs> anyway, so he gets on um, my horse and he just heads straight up. Like, you know, I just, you know, work on this 20 meter circle down the bottom, but he just went, he just rode straight up the end of the arena and like on cue at the spot, um, my horse, he spooked, right? And all as um, this guy did was that he just, you know, he just sat there. He just gave him a boot with the inside leg because he'd spooked away. He gave a, um, he gave a, a kick with his inside leg and he just asked my horse to canter. And then I proceeded to watch as my horse just calmly loped and loped and loped around the arena like he was the quietest horse on the planet. And I was like, I was just like, what the hell? And it was that moment when you realise it's just like, I don't think I know anything. Yeah. So it was that started me off, right? It was that when I just write, I just looked at looked at myself in the mirror and go like, what the hell was that? So um, yeah, that was like that was the that was a moment when you realize, you know, how there's the scales of competency, you know, how there's, you know, um inconscious. Yes, in, in like unconscious incompetent. Oh, sorry, and yeah. then, yeah, and then conscious incompetent and then competent, right? And then yeah. it goes up. Yeah. So the staging that I was at, right, was unconsciously incompetent, which is a really yeah. blissful stage where you blame the rest of the world and think you're amazing. And it was that moment that I got thrown down into the uh, the conscious incompetent. But that that moment taught me a lot when it was just like my horse wasn't scared of that at all. And, and he was such, that horse was such an amazing, beautiful horse, like, that horse was seriously, seriously had a fabulous temperament because that horse never did a thing to me ever again after that. It was just like what horse is fixed by one kind of one inside leg tap. <laughs> and then because I just learned like, you know, and as, as he told me, he goes, you're creeping around him. You're creeping around him. You're trying to protect him. And all as you're doing is you're telling him the world is terrifying. And as soon as I stopped that, he just went like, oh, right he just relaxed and yeah that was the last time I ever crept around a horse and my journey kind of started there but the really sad thing with that horse is like I discovered so I bought this young seven-year-old horse I rediscovered him when he was 14 to discover he was actually a really really special horse so I actually did buy this incredible athletic performance horse right that could really achieve a lot finally made it to my first show one you know he got 74 percent because he was so fabulous right he was he was just he was awesome and at the show he was so quiet because he was quiet he was really quiet i just terrified him for seven years right and um you know and he won and we won everything and i was like i was just blown away i was overjoyed and he died a couple of weeks later from colic oh, no. yeah so I was just like, and it's like inside of me, I've got, there's these two really significant horses in my journey, right? There's this horse, his name's Scooter and another horse called Gift, right? And it's just like, I don't want anyone to miss out on the beautiful horse that they actually have sitting in the paddock that they're labeling with all these sensitive and scared of that and anxious horse and, you know, difficult and, and all that. I don't want that because I did that to this incredible creature and I missed out. And not only that, I stressed the crap out of him for seven years. I made that horse's life partly misery, you know, because he was with this human that just told him the world was freaking terrifying. And he was actually a really quiet horse. 
And I suppose the loveliest thing was the last thing I did on him was just walking around on a loose rein around the bush trails by myself, you know? So, yeah, you know, and I don't want anyone to have to do that. Yeah. yeah. So that was one point that made me aware that moment made me aware that I was incompetent mm-hmm. and consciously and that was really uncomfortable. And then that kind of gave me one set of skills But then I had this other little horse that I was able to have a lot of fun on, even though I was incompetent, right? Really incompetent. And I was doing really well at dressage, which, you know, it's like (laughs) I was doing really well on him and he had a really hard mouth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it was just, you know, you just looked at a whole lot of different bits and, you know, I'd finally found the bit and, you know, he was doing um, quite well, but I'd I'd struggled between, I couldn't get from elementary to medium because in the flying changes, he'd just take off because he was hard mouthed. Right. And I had the greatest set of arms on me, right. Because of that. And, um, and then one day in the midst of trying to train the frustration of trying, of training flying changes, his mouth bled. Right. And all the foam, you know, the wonderful foam that all the coaches and everything used to tell me was a good thing that used to pour out of his mouth turned bright orange. And what he'd actually done is that he'd actually, I hadn't ripped his mouth. I actually think I've done something even worse. He was so stressed that he'd actually bitten his front lip and had put three teeth through his lip. Wow. And this is a really horrifying thing, right? The the whole thing was horrifying. It was horrifying on so many levels because the coach I was with was actually a visiting judge. Well, he was a judge as well, Um, but a a coach, you know, and really high level one in Australia. And he just told me to like, oh, keep going. You know, he's just spitting his lip. Don't worry about it. (laughs) I was just like, I was horrified because back then, even though I had progressed, right, I had to see blood to see that I'd hurt a horse. I had to see blood. That's how blind my eyes were. I can see an uncomfortable horse just by the way it stands in the paddock now, but back then I had to see a horse bleed to know that I'd hurt it, right? But I was horrified. But this guy just wanted me to keep going, you know, like that. And I rang up my my local coach because I was really distraught because I had to stop the lesson. Like I was just, I was horrified. And I rang her up on the way home and I was crying. And she said, good, don't worry about it. Maybe that'll teach him a lesson for pulling. And at that moment, I just thought, is that, if that's dressage, I actually don't want to do it. I was so, I was disgusted in myself. Like I was completely and absolutely disgusted. And that then created another change in me because it kind of rocked me to my core that when I was, you know, my partner, the really good horseman, you know, the one that never gave me advice, he waited for me to come to him all the time. He was just playing videos like on YouTube and there was this voice of a cowboy (laughs) that said, (laughs) there's no such thing as a hard-mouthed horse. It's a horse that's resistant to pressure and habituated to pain and then proceeded to go and demonstrate lateral flexion. So I raced, I I just went and got my horse. He kind of recovered from his mouth bite by then. And I saddled him up and I took him down the arena and I picked up one rein and he turned his head the other way. And I was like, holy crap, you don't know what that means, right? You don't know what that means. And then once again, I flew into like incompetence, but 
I just sat there and I just kept picking up the rain until he started following it. And then I picked up two rains and he's, he just melted into like a soft feel. And I was like, I was, I was in shock. Right. So this horse, and I think he was like, he was probably about eight at the time, seven or eight at the time. And I'd had him since he was two and he'd always been hard mouthed and heavy in my hand. And I felt like I had found the meaning of life. Like I had discovered something that was, but I hadn't had discovered. I've learned it from someone and, and it just blew me away. And that was in 45 minutes. I did that myself with no clue about what I was doing. So that started, that started me off on, so one horse taught me how to be around horses, right? And the other horse got me into communicating with them, to teaching them. Yeah, yeah. wow. Very that's how it started. Cool. So that's probably a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. And I can totally relate. And I think some of our listeners can relate as well, because I remember when I first watched a quote unquote cowboy work yeah. with a highly strong warm blood. And I, in that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, this guy is a wizard. I know nothing. I need to learn yeah. this. So yeah. um, I think there is that stigma around, oh, people that do horsemanship just ride like quarter horses that are really quiet and they're you know basically bomb proof but they could easily be highly strong and spirited if they were trained in a different way so yeah yeah I still think that there are horses that are probably a little bit more highly strung than others or uh, you know black belt horses as you say um, <laughs> well there but, are yeah yeah they're, they're yeah but I do think the training has a huge influence and oh, um, speaking yeah and speaking of training could you tell us what is your training approach or philosophy now with horses? Okay, so what I specialize in is putting a foundation on the horse or more correctly teaching people how to do it themselves because I started taking horses in to train them and, you know, these horses had a lot of distrust and bad association with people and I'd bring them back and then I'd have to hand them over to people that would then just go and break their hearts again. So um yeah I just discovered that it was like no I'm not taking your horse in you're going to come here I'm going to show you how to do it so then I worked out um you know that was whole learning process about how best to introduce that to people so I basically teach people to put the operating system in the horse that then you can build it into whatever you want but it teaches it how to learn you teach them how to like build that that connection and get them to follow them and, you know, and then be able to build on top of that. So that's what I, that's what I specialize in. I thought I was going to be someone that, you know, worked out how to do the whole lot up to, you know, because dressage was my sport, how to do the whole PF and passage thing and, and be able to train that really well. But I came to like a fork in the road where it was just like, I need a lot of time and a lot of horses mm-hmm. to work that out. And it's just like, I can go down that route and work that out or I can keep going what I'm doing of helping people put that operating system in. And so that's what I've decided to do. Yeah. And I still tick away. I don't think I don't tick away trying to work that stuff out, but most of my focus is on just putting in that basic operating system and trying to communicate that to people of how to do that really well. Yeah. Nice. And that makes total sense because I've observed that as well, where I'll pick up uh, feel on a horse and it will go really nicely and then I'll hand it back to the owner and I'm like oh that doesn't work over there yeah <laughs> so oh, isn't, that, isn't that a fascinating thing right how, yeah working out how you and you would have come across that yourself like you just said you pick it up and goes really nicely rider gets on seems to be doing exactly the same thing 
-hmm. but it doesn't work and trying to work out that puzzle of what they're actually doing when it seems like they're doing the same thing so yeah that's been I yeah that I love that's a really cool thing to work out because it's really fascinating and even like to the point where I've been riding horses and the owner has had a problem with dangerous behaviors like rearing under saddle and I've ridden the horse and I haven't actually taught it this is actually pre-horsemanship days as well Um, I've ridden the horse and nothing has really gone wrong at all and it's gone smoothly and nice I've had a nice ride the owner hops on and instantly the behavior is there (laughs) it's really interesting how horses create those associations yes yeah Yeah. gosh yeah I had I remember one of the most (laughs) terrifying moments of my life that was one of those you know as you go along your journey and you know this as you start helping people and training horses and everything you get to that point where you give up thinking that you know much at all like you just keep on learning because nothing surprises you anymore and my moment came when I had this horse that had been working with the lady for you know a long time she'd be going really well and in one lesson I asked her just you know we're a young horse and just work on can and we've done it before and he just bronked you know, out of the blue, he didn't seem it. I didn't, because I normally can pick it. And I was mortified and she she fell off. She didn't get hurt, but it was just, it really shocked me because I didn't pick that at all. And normally I could have picked it. Yeah. And anyway, it turned out that he actually had, and there was a, there was a reason for it. The vets think he'd either rolled on a log or been hit by a falling branch or something like that because the horse actually had a massive abscess under his wither where the saddle was. Oh, wow. And, of course, when she went up into Canada, that pressed down and back because it was completely out of character. It was completely out of the blue. Yeah. So that was like that's always in the back of my mind that you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you don't pick it, you know, yeah, even yeah. that. So he went and healed up. He went and got a lot better. But I took him, um, I took him in and I trained him uh, and I got it all out. I was cantering him everywhere. It's all fine. It's good. She came. She got on him and was cantering. She did two canters, I think, on him. Mm-hmm. And then she asked him to canter and he just got a little unbalanced for the moment and she, she just ripped him because she was worried about the time that she just ripped him and then he just went to pronk again. Oh um, you know, so then it's just, it was just like, yep, and, yep, that's a big learning experience. So that's the only time with that one person at one horse that I've ever had a horse kind of either buck on them and it was for a medical reason but then that horse had also made a connection with her during that of that pain connection and she had like she triggered it It was like I couldn't I went and got back on him and of course I just canned him and canned him and and couldn't do it but you know I just I just took him for a little bit longer and then worked back up with that particular horse but yeah Yeah, how people can trigger things so in a horse. How people can trigger things in a horse. That was my lesson of how people can trigger things in horses. <laughs> hmm, very interesting. Yeah. Earlier, you mentioned that you're a pharmacist. Can you tell yeah. us how that has influenced your way of training horses and teaching people? <clears throat> um, oh, look, massively. Because really, what happened with my science background, probably the similar to yours, is that when I you know, when I had the moment when I realized I was completely incompetent, the hilarious thing was, and it kind of, it's embarrassing. So this is why, again, why I don't judge people, right? Here I am. I'm a pharmacist. I'm just not any pharmacist. I'm a university lecturer, right? I've got a, like at that time, I'd, I'd done my master's and I actually specialized in learning. 
in education because the government had this big push on university that within every school there had to be a specialist that was an education specialist right and so that was me and I'd won this stack of teaching awards and my area was actually motivation which is actually behavioral <laughs> anyway I couldn't connect like even though I'd gone off to Andrew McLean and clinics and stuff like that and I'd listened to it I actually hadn't conceptualized it right but when I actually did conceptualize it, that moment sitting in the arena with the horse I'd made, how made his mouth bleed, picking up the reins and realizing I could communicate with him, you know, by negative reinforcement. <laughs> um, that what it allowed me to do is that it gave me, I had this literacy level that I could read stuff and understand it. So, and I, that was very lucky. It's like all these moons aligned in my life that the science background allowed me to read anything from neuroscience or science to do with how horses learn and about horses. So I could absorb that information. And not only that, I was a discipline by that stage. I was a disciplined kind of learner. So I could sit down and learn it. I sit down and look at it and I could understand it. Then with my life with a guy that was a really good horseman, Gary Willoway, he gave me the practical experience, right? Because he was a practical horseman. So I'd learned practically. So I was able to take in all the practical experts, right? And appreciate them. Then all the equitation science stuff and behavioral stuff and the psychology stuff, of course, I was actually already an expert in that myself, but I'd never applied it to horses. Like, it's just crazy when I look at myself. It's kind of like really embarrassing. So when someone's there and they don't get it or they don't conceptualize it, look at me. At that time, I had a master's in it like, and I couldn't relate it to the horse. So what does some poor person do? Anyway, so I was actually able, so I had this literacy, basically it was the literacy, the language understanding to be able to absorb stuff. And of course that then allowed me to do that. So I was able to put one concept onto another because when people learn, right, there's this thing called threshold concepts mm -hmm. that you got to learn. Sometimes you got to learn one concept to get over the bridge, the threshold, to be able to appreciate and take on another one. Mm -hmm. So I was able to rapidly go through that myself because I could rapidly understand stuff and get through. So being a pharmacist, right, the, the, the science thing that I took and then that little bit of luck where I got made the education expert, right, allowed me to have the literacy level to be able to read stuff, absorb it. And then I'm in this environment with this excellent horseman guy that just went, you want to practically apply that? I'll bring you all these horses home for you to play with, right? And I just tinkered and I just tinkered with horses. Why I'm sitting here talking to you of how I help people is an extreme, absolute accident that's actually quite hilarious. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Being a pharmacist is an important part of it because if I don't have that science part to me, I wouldn't have been able to take on the, the depth of things I've been able to understand. Yeah, very cool. I wonder if this threshold concept is why I might read a book once and get something out of it and then a year later I read it again and get something completely different out of it. That's correct. This is absolutely true. That's yeah. why, that is why you can't, because your brain as well, okay, because how knowledge is built in human brains, well, what they think, it's just a theory, but imagine it's like a structure or like a tree. It's like this, it's framework, mm -hmm. right? 
and you actually have to change bits of it but it's got to fit back into the framework with your beliefs because humans take on everything it's your brain's taking in everything but to make it easy for the categorization of your memories right it forms beliefs right and beliefs are part of this tree so yeah they got to you got to change things to be able to see things you can only see and hear what you understand so to be able to get into someone's head and create that change is actually a really massive thing and it's it's you got to be able to get past the gatekeeper of their beliefs mm-hmm. right because if it doesn't fit their beliefs people will just reject it you got to get in under that radar and ha- give them a light bulb moment which is the same thing with a threshold con- threshold concepts a fancy word for a light bulb moment and then you can change something but it's it's connected to all these other things so that's why and that's why I'm, you know, like you, I read books again and again and again, because with new eyes on new focus, as I, as I go through and I'm having little focuses on things that I'm curious about, okay, is that I'll find something in there. You know, I remember thinking it's just like, damn you, I've never been taught this horses learn from the release of pressure business. And then I pulled out, you know, the German writing manual thing, you know, that we all get right? Pulled it open and there it was on page one. (laughs) I've never seen that before. You know, like that was like, I'd never seen that before. It never made any sense. You know, it didn't, it went, it was not, it was, I did not conceptualize that at all. It's like how I needed to see blood for hurting a horse. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like our job as uh, people, trainers or teachers yep, exactly what we are yep is changing beliefs yes and it's in a, and it's a tough job and it's a co- complex job so people are just have to say that's the thing up front you know you can only see what you know to see yeah i'm going to give you a hell of a lot of information and you might be lucky in a lesson to twit lucky right yeah three things yeah three things they might be able to take away because the brain's just going whoa reject reject oh you know like that's and they're not doing it deliberately it's just that it's like you're standing there with them and they're looking at the sky and they're going the sky is blue and you're going the sky is purple you know like that's the extreme because they can't see it so the brain their brain just doesn't do that so you know with humans it's you've got to as i said you've got to learn little things in in chunks and that's why people and there's one message i can send home to your you know listeners and stuff like that Mm -hmm. is like you got to stick with someone one lesson one clinic is not you're not going to get the good stuff out of that people they got to like you know sign up to that program Yes. They've got to come along to your clinics. They've got to have lesson after lesson after mm-hmm. lesson because if you see that person work with a horse and they're good, okay, it's going to take you many, 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 many hours spent with them to just get a little bit of what they have to teach you. I love that you mentioned that yeah. because there's only so much information you can give someone in 45 minutes and yeah, like you say, they can only take on so much in that. Yeah, you can't. Your brain's not designed for that. It's like... It is the equivalent of someone handing me a horse and go like, and it's, you know, a three-year-old horse mm-hmm. and saying, look, you know, 45 minutes, can you get it massaging? 
That seriously, I'm not kidding. That is the ridiculousness of it. We yeah, all yeah. like are all like, oh yeah, no, they got a little appreciation that might take a little bit of long time to teach a horse such a high level thing. Good. Yeah. Well, the knowledge in my head that makes me me. Mm. It, it takes a lot of learning. It takes a lot of those thresholds. It takes a lot of light bulbs to turn on, right? Yes. A lot of light bulbs. And then like some of those light bulbs actually require you to be seriously humbled or make big mm. mistakes to be able to be reinforced. Mm. Because the problem with that tree, right, that's in our head, a framework of all our knowledge, you might get a light bulb come on. Mm -hmm. Right. But if that light bulb isn't touched a number of times and reinforced, the tree just goes back to what it was. Yes. And that's the whole science behind misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Because a human, a person will always default to their misconception if it's not actively built on. Your mm -hmm. mind just goes back to what it was. No different than a horse. Yeah. You take it out, you train something, you go put it back in the paddock, it'll forget that. We're the same. Very interesting. Mm. Mm. And with changing beliefs, what is something that you believe is true that a lot of horse people disagree with? Oh, look, people, okay. The, <laughs> probably the biggest thing is, is like people want to see horses as these really empathetic creatures that just want to connect with you and they're all like ethereal and full of love and, and stuff like that. And it's just like, Horses to me are incredible, you know, spiritual, powerful creatures, but it's actually their lack of empathy for us, their lack of wanting to trust us that actually makes them special, incredibly powerful. Because mm. until you are aligned in your mind, in your body, and you damn it, you understand them, mm -hmm. right? And you then get to the point like us where you just accept i got a hell of a lot more to learn because the more yeah. you learn, the more you know you've got to learn. Mm -hmm. Until human you get to that point, I'm not going to trust you, right? So they're not like, oh, you know, oh, human, I want to give you my heart and things like that. It's like, no, they are, they are like beasts of standards. Yes. Right? <laughs> standards. You know, I am a horse. I like being a horse. I'm built to be a horse. I'm not built to connect with people that eat me, you know, and it's just like, so I think that's what makes me different. Mm -hmm. And I see beauty in things like people want, oh, you know, the horse came over and sniffed me, you know, and licked me. And oh, I'm so happy about that when it's just like, if I just see a horse, when I ask it to do something, just melt and do it and relax, mm -hmm. that to me is the special bit. When I can make yeah. that horse feel motivated and soft and calm, willing and confident, right, to be able to work with me, that that I, I don't need them to sniff me, lick me or come over and want a carrot from. I don't need that. When I can see that they can work with me and they're cool with it, yes. that to me is special. Yeah. yeah. I don't need them to lay down and I, you know, oh, the horse was laying down and it la allowed me to lay all over it. You know, that doesn't impress me. You know, that's not what I like from them. It's when I can get them to work with me and they understand me and they're calm about it and, and they're cool with it, that's what warms my heart. Yeah, that's cool. But I still lie down with my horses. <laughs> oh, that's okay. You can. 
That's okay. Yeah, you can, but you can. I can still communicate with them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> you got to have a balance. Um, and when you were speaking then, it just reminded me of when sometimes people say, oh, my horse would never hurt a fly. And I'm like, oh, nice. I reckon they would. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that horse I told you about, the one that taught me not to creep around horses and how he died just a couple of weeks after I'd gone to my first competition on him. Yeah. <laughs> well, he had, he got a, what's called a transverse inception which means the bow telescoped on itself. So he got like a mild impaction mm-hmm. and the bow telescoped on itself. So what actually how he presented, well, he had like a mild colic, he got treated, he got a little bit better, but not fully better. And the thing, this went on for two weeks because what had happened, the bow had telescoped on itself and had started to um, die, basically, that part of yeah. the bow. So he was slowly being poisoned by his system. But, the, you know, it was completely not obvious to the vets. It's a rare thing to happen. He was quite an older horse for it to happen as well. Mm-hmm. So by the time I had, you know, I kept taking him back to the vet for two weeks. Every two days I went back going, he's not right. And they just said, oh, I was just being a wuss, you know. By the time they actually did, were serious and they decided to ultrasound him and stuff like that and discovered this, it was actually too late, you know. So I just made the heartbreaking decision that I was going to put him down because his chances of surviving surgery were quite minimal by that stage because he just, he had lost in two weeks, he'd lost so much weight, you know, and it wasn't good. So anyway, I brought him home so he could be, and if you looked at him, you wouldn't think there was much wrong with him because he'd perk up, you know, and he was all right, but he hadn't eaten properly for days and his bloods were quite terrible by that stage and he had pernicious in his mouth and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he just wanted, when I got home and he was going to be put down the next day, he just wanted to go out in the paddock with the other horses because he was boss horse, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it's really heartbreaking. I put him out in the paddock and they just went, hmm. And they just beat him up basically because it's just like, ah, oh, you're not in there. You're not yourself. Great. Now it's time to sort you out, my friend. You know, there's all that insecurity about, you know, domesticated horses, you know, getting their kind of pecking order right. And it broke my heart. Right. So there he was not well and they just took advantage of it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so it was just like so I just pulled him out of the paddock and put him in the stable. It was very, it was it was a total awful, it was some of the most the awful kind of day of my life, or awful couple of weeks actually seeing that happen. But it was just that's the moment that I realized it's just like, no, horses are not the empathy makers you know they have their world and their structure of their society and how they see the world it's it's kind of different and to them you know and also the domesticated horses they're not necessarily a bit more screwed up than wild ones <laughs> in that department but yeah that was the moment I went no no they're not going oh you're not well dear scooter you know it was like you're not well well you're not right you don't push yeah. you around <laughs> you know so yeah mm. they're not the creatures of great empathy yeah and with domesticated horses what do you think actually makes them happy domesticated horses are still wild horses at heart so even though they know nothing different than the domesticated environment and they're all like a little messed up from it they still they still got their needs in them mm-hmm. and those needs you know not that they'll even know what they are but they've still got those urges in them and look there's a book you can read I don't know if you've read it but there's a book called Untamed and it's a it's a personal developmenty type book and stuff like that but in it the story starts and kind of finishes with the story of a cheetah a cheetah that's been kept in um it's kind of like a bit of a a sideshow 
at some kind of, I don't know, I don't even know if it's a wildlife park or whatever, but okay. they kind of, they have this, the, they, they get the cheetah to run. They actually teach the cheetah to run like a bit of an obstacle course or stuff like that. And there's this kind of bit at the end of the book where, you know, because the whole book's about that you've got this wild cheetah inside you that's all kind of contained by cultural expectations and, you know, the crap that you learn in life. And there's this last little bit of the book where they talk about the cheetah, the cheetah just sitting there and you can watch the cheetah and you can do this when you go to zoos, right? I, zoos, I find a very painful experience because you see all these wild animals, they're like this cheetah and this cheetah would just look off into the distance, right? It's all alone. It has just like a dog as a friend that every now and then will be allowed to play with because they're scared it might eat it. And um, it just looks out into the distance and this lady feels that she knows, that cheetah knows they're wild but they don't know it because they've known nothing different, but the wildness still burns in them. So with the horse, they're the same. They might be horse, they might be domesticated, but in them is still that wild horse that has these inner, you know, these yearnings for things that it doesn't understand, you know, and hence why you get stereotypes and hence why it feels uncomfortable and, and causes people so much frustration because they're not perfect for us. Yeah. So they're wild at heart still. Mm. So what you're saying is this, those wild kind of instincts are still in there and need to be satisfied in order for a horse to be happy? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. The, yeah. You know, the three Fs. Yeah. You want to read a good blog. I think it's a Lauren Fraser blog. She's a great horse behaviourist. She does some really great writings. If you type in the three Fs, horse and three Fs <laughs> into Google, you will find her blog on um, its friends, Food and freedom are the three Fs, the three motivational needs, the needs, the drives within horses. And that's that was a real, of course, I learned a lot more about it now, but that was my kind of pivotal piece that I wrote that made me understand um, the needs of horses, the hierarchy and the things they need to feel whole. Yeah. Mm. Uh, a few people have mentioned, well, actually, I think most people have mentioned the three Fs on the podcast, but I think it's getting more and more well known now. And it's almost like a prerequisite for me now, if I'm going to help someone with their horse, it's like they need to have a friend, they need to have constant access to forage and they need to have the freedom to move around. Otherwise yeah. I can't really help you because your horse isn't going to have their basic needs satisfied. No. And, and of course, when their basic needs are not satisfied, you've only got this tiny little bit of coping ability for the horse to actually work with, right? So that whole concept of the worry cup that, a, you know, a horse can only handle one cup of worry before it overflows. And when you see it being reactive and not handling stuff, that's because the cup's so full that every time you put a little bit of pressure in there and expectation in there, it just overfills. Mm -hmm. So with the three Fs, what that does is that that's a lot of clog up in that worry cup. Mm -hmm. So by looking into those needs you know you you at least tip some of that out you'll never get it all out because the horse is domesticated the horse will always live the domesticated horse will always live with a degree of chronic stress and that chronic stress will be in there it'll always be there but you can certainly lower it down mm. by, by addressing that now yeah. i know you love controversial topics Oh, yes. <laughs> You've got a segment on YouTube, I think, called Can of Worms. So I suggest everyone head on over to YouTube and listen to those. But I would really love to hear your take on the popular topic of positive versus negative reinforcement. <laughs> okay. Well, I do both. 
Um, I do both. Um, it's so funny. I actually had a positive reinforcement person that accidentally joined my group and um, yeah, and yeah, gave me a bit of grief the other other week. Um, anyway, I use and this I'll tell you what I said to them, right? Okay. I use positive reinforcement. Hell, if I've got something where I can help a horse and communicate with it, that's all it's doing. You know, I'm communicating a behavior, right? Yeah. And I want a really full toolbox, mm-hmm. a really full one that I can use with, you know, everything. The, the, and like I use positive reinforcement for some things, right? I've done a lot of investigations into it and I've just, I've, and I've made my mind up that I don't like it being my main one. Okay, and I've got lots of reasons for that, why I don't choose for it to be my main one. Um, and it's all got to do with the type of the type of motivation. It's all to do with the type of motivation I'm growing inside of the horse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the pr- problem is if you've, with when I use pressure, I believe, right? And I can give you a lot of science behind because I research it. I'm better at creating more of an intrinsic motivation to follow me, which gives, I believe I'm better at creating a, a, a better sense of control the, that the horse is controlling its environment with mm-hmm. that. So I actually believe I, I give the horse a greater sense of autonomy when I use pressure. And not only that, horses see the world, they, 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 their reality is constructed by the physical world, by physical navigation of stuff, right? Not like us. We have a social reality. It's different, right? We have a social and physical reality. Horses just have a physical one. So my primary thing is to use pressure because I believe, and it's only me from what I've seen in my experiments, but I can also back it up with a real rationalized science-based argument, right? is that I believe that gives them a better sense of control within themselves to navigate this physical world, right? Mm-hmm. When I'm using reward, I can create habits, right? Yes, but it sits on the outside and I can see some pretty funky stuff that goes in it because the part of the brain that you tap into to that, it's kind of close to some other parts of the brain. So that's why you know, the positive reinforcement people that have a problem with willy drop yeah, and things like that, right? Which just, just it's like it's kind of all there. And so I, do, I use it for some things and it's very powerful. I use it a lot for, I, I combine it kind of with, no, it's truly not. It, it's just, it's, I use it for systemic de- desensitization and counter conditioning a lot. And I always make sure people understand that you've got to have party time. There's no, no, nothing wrong with giving a horse a, a treat or whatever. Sometimes horses that have very bad associations with the bit, I'll get in there and use it, right? And I always make sure that I treat train horses so that they take treats really well. So it's in my toolbox, but it's not my primary thing, but it's there. And of course, <clears throat> the problem I find with a positive reinforcement crowd is that they're righteous. They get a righteousness about their argument, you know, and they accuse me that I use adversives and it's evil right? And they don't use adversives because they're pure, right? So when someone's righteous, they're making a moral judgment about themselves. They're saying they're more moral, that they're the moral high ground, right? Now, being righteous is dangerous because it means you're deciding what's good for that horse, that you're judging yourself as being better and doing the best. And you got to be real careful doing that. You know, like, so um, as I said to this lady who had a big crack at me 
I have a full toolbox. You have a limited one, right? What's going to happen, right? So you need, when you've got to work with that horse, and it's not your beliefs that are necessarily going to determine what's best for that horse at the moment. It's the context. So if there's a bushfire coming or that horse needs to get on the float tomorrow to go to the vet or, you know, you go meet someone and they finally got their lame horse booked into the specialist vet, you know, in two days' time, but it kicks when, when with the farrier, right? Positive reinforcement takes it's a lot of time to create that habit, right? And so... With me, I let the, it's like letting the context of the situation determine what is best for that horse. Mm-hmm. Because delay of something, delay is actually can be adversive. Mm. So what's adversive? What's your ethical argument here? Okay, you're righteous because you never use anything adversive, right? And not only that, they also play into the theory, fear theory. Right? There's a fear called fear theory because the positive reinforcement people will say that the fear of that adversity, that, that negative association with that adversity that you use when you gave that horse a, a crack, right, because it was, it, you know, it wouldn't go forward, you know, and it was ignoring you and so you escalated the pressure. Mm-hmm. That fear of that pain is going to stay with that forever. And it's like, that's not true. Fear theory is being debunked. It's being debunked, right? There's a lot of evidence coming that people think that, like, so when you teach with pressure, <clears throat> you get learning <clears throat> that occurs by escape reinforcement. But then it can go to the next level and you get avoidance. Now, avoidance is the type of learning that is, that is really hard. You can't make that go into extinction, right? But... The fear theory people, the positive reinforcement, like to stick to this theory and it's just a belief that they're doing it and it's all they're avoiding it because of fear. That's not what the research is showing when they put little electrodes in heads and stuff like that, that they think the horses are going, just say, just say I'm in a round yard and the horse learns to go off my point, mm-hmm. right, and learns to take itself off. And when I raise my hand, it does an upward transition. They'll say that the horse is learning to death. It's in avoidance and it's not needing to be reinforced and everything like that. So there's a level of learning that that horse is doing it because of this memory of fear, the learning centered in a little negative thing. Well, they didn't find that when they started doing experiments with rats and putting a little electrodes in their brain and found out what was happening. It was actually, yes, initially when the, when the, um, when the rats were learning things to get to avoidance yes they went through the escape reinforcement where it was where the the fear centers in their brain would light up and they'd perform it right but then as they started demonstrating avoidance the the fear centers weren't coming on it was the same center that came on when they used positive reinforcement right more of a sense so so signals instead of becoming oh, my God, I better run away from, better do this thing or something terrible is going to happen to me. They actually changed and started seeing as a safety signal. I can navigate that. I can navigate that. I can navigate that. And 
when they try to tie the whole classical condition fear thing to a situation, they don't know the full story of Pavlov and his dogs, right? Because the associations are very context-driven and if the context changes, so does the association. So guess what? Those dogs, right, know that that would salvate when they heard the bell. Yeah. Pavlov had a problem with his, with he and his students had this problem that every time they brought, brought someone in to demonstrate it, the dogs wouldn't do it. It's because the environment and the context changed. So associations can change. So uh, a, a horse or whatever might have a negative association, but you change the context for now when they understand things and they've been introduced, the context changes and so does the association. Okay, so positive reinforcement people hang on to these core beliefs, kind of like barefoot advocates, like really pro barefoot things that think shoes are evil and shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be used. They're hanging on to some beliefs that are not necessarily 100% true. So fear theory that everything you do with pressure and aversive is based on fear. It's not true. You know, once the horse learns it, learns to navigate it, their association with it changes, right? Yes. And mind you, that's just a theory too, but it's countering this other theory as well. And what I see practically aligns with that. Mm -hmm. um, and they also hang on to this negative, the classical conditioning thing, you know, the whole thing and how they always talk about adversives, adversives, adversives. Um, when really it's just like some of the most upset unhappy horses or the most stressed horses I've worked with have been wanting a treat because you can't control necessarily when you start working with treats, you've got to work out your hierarchy of treat because the treat has the equivalent, if you're not careful, can trigger the same kind of angst within a horse of a whip. But with a whip, I can control how much I tap it. But with a treat, you know, I've got a domesticated animal here that has no freedom necessarily in how they eat or what they eat. So their, their desire and want for that treat can escalate it into something, making the horse very goddamn anxious. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when they get that treat, is that a release of pressure because they finally got the treat? You know, so it's up to the horse to determine, okay, whether something is adversive or rewarding or what it is, okay? Yeah. There you go. Wow. Was that controversial? You can now get a lot of hate mail now. Yeah, you're probably going to get some hate mail now. That's all right. I get it all the time. I get it all you the time. Like, yeah, they don't like me, but it's just like, well, no, there's some really funky, funky behavior that gets triggered by positive reinforcement and they just can't see it. I can, right? And I played around with it and I've dealt with a lot of horses that have been done that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you can just, just watch them. I just watch them. Okay, you've done that. You don't use any verses. Let me watch what your horse has to say. Oh, look, tail swishy, swishy. Yeah. You know, it's just like, hmm, it's a yeah. bit of a negative thought gone through that horse's head there. Yeah. It sounds like you can see the pros and cons for each of the four quadrants Absolutely. in terms of learning theory operant conditioning. Yep. Um, and it's your idea to have a really full toolbox and Absolutely. to be open-minded in what approach Absolutely. you choose yep. with the horse and in what context. That's correct. So I've, I've been really excited to ask you this question. <laughs> if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And what would you want to ask them? 
Ah, okay. Some horsemen I really absolutely adore to meet, um, but I'll probably never get the chance because he's getting older. He only sticks to America and only has like a couple of people at his clinic is a guy called Harry Whitney. Have you heard of him? I actually haven't. Okay. You go to, well, you won't actually even find because the guy's not on the internet. There's, there is a guy that's kind of written a book about him um but it's you know even those that actually know harry actually don't even reckon that book's really good but harry whitten is a pretty special human being so there go check him out but it was actually his thought so he works out if it wasn't for him you see he got really good friends with ross jacobs here in australia oh yeah and ross jacobs was the person that allowed me to see a horse's thought so you know how I had to see blood to see a horse was in pain well you can actually see horses thoughts if you know how to absorb them and Ross got that from Harry you know that you got to change your horse's thought and you can see horses thoughts and people think oh it's because the eyes are triangulated and the mouth's tense and it's like no it's kind of more than that you know you can see muscles ripple rhythm through their body you can actually see the relaxation or tension in their muscles and the way that they're breathing or just the way that they're weighted over their feet. You know, you can see their intent a little bit. You can learn to read it. And when you can work with a horse at that level, that really changes, that really changes things. That's where you can make basics just thinking over there, not even having to go in that direction. They can just, you can just start training them to think over there. So I'd really like to, I'd really like to meet him one day, you know, if I, if I could, cause he's a really special guy. There's another amazing lady. Well, okay, I shouldn't have said lady because I, I should have got to see if you fell into the same trap I did, right? You might even know of her, but there's uh, this really awesome lady and she's uh, she was a protege of Ray Hunt, right? Her name is Lee Smith. She's a lady in her 60s now, right? Lee Smith. And when I first heard her name, I go, oh, who's he? Right? Yeah, because all horsemen wow, are men, Yeah. Horsemen are men. Yeah. Well, Lee Smith, go check her out. I actually wrote a really cool blog on her. I actually went and spent, spent four days with her. And look, did she teach me anything I didn't know? No. But hell, the cowboy wisdom that flew out of her mouth was just a beautiful, adorable, incredible. And so I've written a, uh, I sat there the whole, like, just writing these these ways that she explained things. And it was just glorious, you know? So I remember not being able to understand cowboy wisdom, you know, like, you know, the whole, you know, do less sooner. And it's like, uh-huh, mm-hmm. You know, it was all poetry <laughs> back then before I knew. And now it's just like, wow, that's beautiful. Well, if you want to read some good cowgirl yeah. <laughs> and the way that she explains things, like, I'll just tell you one of them that was really cool, like, so when you pick a horse up into like a soft field, so it's not contact. If you ever want to get me kind of giving you a six hour lecture, it's on developing contact, right? Because when you make a horse's mouth bleed, you go on a bit of a journey about how to create good contact. Anyway, so <clears throat> Lee Smith refers to a soft field and in the kind of the horsemanship community, they talk about a soft field, which is basically just like the horse relaxing at the pole, but not necessarily stretching in and connecting up like we do in dressage it's yeah. it's kind of like a little bit of a middle ground it's the ground that I go to when I when I'm introducing contact with a horse mm -hmm. right and she described that what's a soft feel a soft feel it's like a telephone line right and if you have these big loopy reins and you're riding on a loose rein you know that 
takes a long time to get that call through, you know, because you've got to pick up that rain before you make that connection. But a soft feel means you're on the line, right? Mm. And I was just like, that's so beautiful way of describing it, you know, yeah. like you want your horse there and then you just have to say something and they'll answer back. You know, and I say something, then it's a back, and it's just yeah. yeah. So there's that blog. It's like a massive blog of the four days. I, I wrote down every bloody word that came out of her mouth, and it was just, it was just beautiful. So I'd have her. Um, final person. Look, it probably would not be. Do, do they have to be horsemen? No, not necessarily. So there's a guy. I just finished reading a book. It was a you know a few months ago now, but it was just like man, this taught me a lot about human beings. Uh, there's a book called. <clears throat> the real you and it's by a guy called Andrew Parr P-A-R-R and wow that that really deepened my understanding of confidence and trusting people and how they relate to their horses it's real depth to subconsciousness and beliefs and stuff like that and so yeah I'd love to sit down with him I'd love to have all those people around because they're deep people that are that that talk about the depth, <laughs> you know, the depth of understanding and alignment of your souls and what gets, so I'd love those. Yeah. yeah cool. Harry Whitney, Lee Smith and Andrew Parr. Who knows? Andrew Parr might even have a horse. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. He's a hypnotherapist, but um, yeah, but, yeah, he was a really, really cool guy of understanding um, the kind of the programming and that gets laid into people. Yeah. Mm, very cool. And we know, well, it sounds like you're a bit of a horse nerd like me. Oh, um, You would have read a lot of books and consumed a lot of resources and gone to a lot of clinics and learned from a lot of people. Can you tell us if you have any favourite horse books, podcasts or resources that you'd recommend? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm like you. Every person that owns a horse should get in and enjoy Mark Rashid's books. Yes. Yes. They're they are not favorite. horse training books. But they're storybooks and a lot of, you gain a lot of insight from, from him. So the earlier books are a great influence of the old man. So yeah. everyone needs that old man sitting behind them, keeping an mm -hmm. eye on them, right? Mm -hmm. That's about keeping yourself honest, right? By having yeah. standards of how you do stuff. So the old man. Mm -hmm. And then I really got a lot of, which was kind of set me on down rabbit holes and stuff like that when it came to his his um, martial arts connection yeah. with horses. And although I don't do a martial art myself, I've studied a lot of the philosophy from it because I've been inspired by him. And mm -hmm. I make, when, I'm, when I train, when I teach people how to train horses, I do it no differently with that same philosophy of martial arts. And I know what, and I believe it's the whole what makes martial arts good for the soul is actually what makes good horsemanship good for the soul. It's the same thing. It's the aligning of your mind and your body, the quietening of your mind to be able to pick up more and about how, and I suppose he goes with Aikido yeah. and Aikido is a really interesting martial arts because it's a martial arts that's meant to be the whole purpose is, is to establish harmony. And that's really important. It's not, you actually want to diffuse and protect and, and from no one from harm. So it's a really deep philosophical approach. And, of course, when we work with horses, what do we want? We want harmony. We want to work together. It's that quietening of the mind, the aligning of the spirit, and being able to influence in a positive way that you create no harm. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so he talks about, I think, just something that popped into my mind when you were talking about that that stood out to me was the circular movement. 
that he talks about that's similar with martial arts and with horses you know a lot of what we do is circular motion circular movement yeah and his whole thing is like you know i'm running a challenge on my my group at the moment on facebook on building confidence and trust and um you know as i say they what do you do when a horse does this crazy thing and i have to say well i prevent that from happening personally yeah. however <laughs> it did well you know someone comes into a clinic and you know and they're riding their horse when they really shouldn't be but I've got to I've got to put a few light bulbs on before I will convince them to kind of work with me by getting off when we start again mm-hmm. but you know their horse will be a little bit up and what do I do I get them to do the best goddamn figure of eights of their life because the figure of eight is a very powerful um, shape and the the thing mm-hmm. that it does and I actually got that from reading Mark Rashid books and then yeah. working on the figure of eight and it works on the person and it works on the horse yeah okay? by keeping them in this motion this rhythmic figure of eight turning 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 yeah mm-hmm. yeah very cool yeah any other books podcasts or resources or that's your main recommendation um, yeah so what I did look I kind of exhausted it was years ago that kind of exhausted you know like I read of the you know, of course, I keep up to date with kind of equitation science and, and things like that. Um, but I kind of exhausted all the kind of horse books known to man. Um, <laughs> and then what I did is I just kind of went into delving into aspects. So let me give you an example. So things that are not horse related, but they are related. Yeah. So I studied a lot of John Gottman stuff and anything to do with relationships, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a relationship or a partnership between um horse and human and what well what do we know about humans getting on right because if you know one half of the thing really well about how we form relationships and that kind of thing and then what I found is just like well no you can take some you take really good stuff from the human stuff and then see how it it works together in the depth of creating um you know, good relationships. And I think what you get from what I got from the relationship stuff is that need See, in a relationship, when you're with a relationship with someone, it's very important that you interpret them, the other person properly, that mm-hmm. you shut up, listen, and try to see their perspective, right? And drop your own. Realise that you've been clouded by your own goddamn bias. So mm-hmm. a lot of their work, you know, and I've read all the books about, you know, conflict in marriage and resolving. Like, I am basically a marriage therapist for people and their horse. That's really what I am. And so the thing is, is getting people to listen and understand things from the other person's perspective Mm. and getting them to interpret the other person properly. So that's why the first course I built was like understanding horses was more of a theory one. So you've got to see it from that species eyes to make a proper determination of, well, a proper, a, a better guess at what's going on here. So then you can adjust it to work with them. So, you know, that's that was really good. Um, Brene Brown books and things like that are very good for understanding, understanding trust, understanding boundaries, <laughs> understanding a, a lot of things like that, of, you know, and the things inside people that drive them. Um, look, there is one aspect of horses that I'm into at the moment. There's this really interesting guy in America called Kerry Thomas. Um, Kerry Thomas, uh, what he does, he's got a really cool job. He he started off, I'll just tell you a little bit about him. He started off, I think he went into the wild, like he was in, you know, biology and researching animals in the wild and stuff like that. And I think he was 
looking he's in america so i think he was studying cougars or one of the like one of those kind of predator type things and he got really interested in watching the wild mustangs in this particular area of america and he actually then just got really into watching them and looking at their behavior anyway now fast forward now this guy you know travels around and he's a consultant for people that buy racehorses so he has this theory of what's called herd dynamics of how influenced a horse is by their or how well they emotionally process information from their senses because he's worked out that they're all like a little different and in a herd you need this variety of herd dynamics to keep keep the herd really functioning really well so you've got the leader horses that are really good at processing their environment to determine whether they're safe or not right and then you've got varying degrees so on the other spectrum you've got horses that are really terrible at it but they act as like the alarm systems so these guys can get tipped off and go, no, it's okay. You know, so everything kind of draws to these very important horses that are not the horses that are the biggest bullies at all. We can't actually, we're not very good at picking the herd leader because the herd leader is the one that can bring calm, right? Mm. We're not good at that. We see, because in our eyes, we see the horse that's the bully or the one that pushes others around yeah we got to understand that we're looking up domesticated horses that are all like a bit messed up, right? <laughs> that they're all kind of insecure and do weird behaviour that they don't do in the wild. So horse leaders in a herd are very hidden to us, but to other horses, they're not. Okay, so horses have this inbuilt in them, like we were talking about before. They're still wild and they're still looking, they still need, they subcontract out the, they subcontract out the emotional processing of the environment to others. To let so collectively they determine whether they're okay or not. Mm. So you isolate a horse and you're left with that horse. So if you're lucky, you know, you come across those horses that are just, you know, pretty easy to get along with. Well, their herd dynamics is really it's really well functioning, right? Yeah. Or you get another horse that's really quite sensitive mm-hmm. and a little bit more prone to being a little bit more difficult. Their herd dynamics is not so good. So this guy applies it to race horses, right? Because he wants a racehorse that's got really good herd dynamics. It's really good because the leaders, right, are less influenced by others. Yeah. They don't need it. So when they race, they race alone. They're not, they don't get into the politics of the other horses in the race or the environment. They just race. So he's determined that the good racehorses that have been in, in history are actually ones that have very good herd dynamics in a certain way or they've been trained in a way because it doesn't matter whether a horse isn't perfect to begin with, mm-hmm. it's whether they can be trained because you can train a horse to improve their herd dynamics. Yeah. And that's what makes them champions because you get some horses that will win some races and won't win others and it's like, why? You know, this horse, yeah. this horse has got everything and mm-hmm. it wins some and it doesn't perform in that. Like, why? Well, his theory is why is that they get they get triggered by something and they get distracted by it or they can't run or they get they get kind of into the politics of the herd. Whereas you get the ones with really sound herd dynamics, they're independent, they will run. And mm-hmm. so far, he's actually been, he does a job going around helping people select racehorses. But he's also can help people pick their child's kid pony and stuff like that. Yes. But he's really fascinating. So yeah, just been talking to him. He sent me some information because what he does, he conducts tests on them. 
So mm-hmm. he has a way that he works with a horse where he can test it. And so that's what I've been um, playing around with is looking at that because, you know, he tests their hearing, their eyesight, their touch, their, you know, their zones. Well, you know, working with a horse with its driveline, some mm-hmm. will have a very sensitive driveline, some will be a little bit dead, some will be funny about this and funny about that. Well, that's what he all looks at and he maps it all. Yeah. Because some horses will be okay with some senses, but not others. Some horses will be good on one side of their body, but not the other. So he maps them all out, which is really fascinating. That's really cool. And I bet if he cracks the code with that, the racing industry will be very interested. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what he does. He goes around and he makes, well, again, it's it's something else. So, you know, the racing is, what do they have to look at? They had to look at like the pedigree and you know, all these other factors and physical. Imagine if there's a new category in their little um, information section, like her dynamic, good. (laughs) That's exactly what he's done. So he's, um, yeah, so he's a really, really fascinating guy to talk to. So I kind of, I I really like what he's saying there because he's given some things like, ah, that, what, that, and just making some connections to, to other stuff. So that's what I'm into at the moment. Very cool. Very cool. I'd like to know from you, what is your, ultimate goal with horses I think I just want to I just want to just change the world how people see horses and understand our interactions with them better Mm -hmm. so really I really want to change how people see themselves Mm -hmm. and to also get the benefits because the horse benefits the people benefit from from they become better people when you allow the horse to raise your standards align yourself raise your standards so that's what everyone that that loves horses we've got a gift we've got this peculiar fascination with horses but um my goal is is everyone that owns a horse i'd like to really show them the real gift that horses can give you personally and make you a better human yeah i love that yeah that's my that's my particular goal is to get that message out there as much as possible because you know, so many people, every human is kind of, be, every human gets born with the same capability, mm-hmm. but it's the opportunities and things that happen to you in life that put dents in you. And Andrew Parr has this really cool thing in his book. He said, everyone's born a diamond, but along the road in life, you get splashed with mud mm-hmm. and you look in the mirror and all as you can see is mud. And so you dress it up, you cover it up to distract from this mud that you see about yourself, right? You put on, you put on gaudy clothes and you you do things to distract because you don't want people to see your mud, right? Um, And then if you're lucky one day, you'll get rained on and the mud will come off and you realize you're still a goddamn diamond under there, right? And if that's, if you're lucky, right? So I think horses are really good at, um, spraying water on that mud on you and making you realize you're actually a good human being because they they don't allow you to be anything else if they work really well with you okay they they make they've made you better they've made you a better human being love that very cool yeah we know that there's only so much information that people can take in in a short amount of time so from today's podcast before we wrap up can you tell us what is the one message you would like our listeners to get from today's interview with you you got a lot more to learn be open to learning the thing that I tell people is like I've 
been pushed the furthest by the people that I argue with, right, or the people that yeah. I actually, all along the road, the people that have made the biggest impact for me are the people that I basically rejected at the start. And that's why on my newsfeed, mm. I'll have people like, you know, I got a lot, I just said some, you know, controversial things about the positive reinforcement gang, but if it wasn't <laughs> for their righteousness, what it does, it makes me learn other people's arguments better than your own, mm-hmm. right? Learn them, go, what is it? What do they mean? If I was going to do that, I go and I'll go and research exactly what they say I find out so I can do their argument better than they can. And then I challenge myself. Yes. And along the way, what's what's happened with me, I've gone, oh, well, maybe. <laughs> yes, that is actually a very good point. Mm. So that's what I do. So be you got to be open, but don't be so open your brain falls out. You yeah. know, your horse is not going to be fixed because you're matching steps with it. You know, they know you're not a horse. Mm. Um, and are you matching the hind leg or the front leg? Because technically your legs are their hind leg, but you're matching their front leg. Anyway, I will go on. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, horses are not made by little tiny things like that. They're made by this, by this, you gotta, you gotta take inside your head and your body and everything like that. And you gotta, you gotta really give it a shake up. Yeah. Your ideas all the time. I don't stop. You know, I'm quite prepared to listen to this podcast in a year's time and be mortified, okay, by what I said. And and I'm not going to be, um, you know, I'll just go, well, there we go. Yeah, that's where I was at that point in time. That's where I was. Yeah. <laughs> that, but don't always be prepared to listen. Yeah. And learn. Some of the greatest things I've learned from 10-year-olds riding their horses. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They say some pretty cool stuff. They say some pretty cool stuff, but sometimes they ride really well as well. Like I learned how to hold my hands and part of my whole contact thing by watching a 10-year-old. Oh, wow. Yeah, she just would get on horses, this little 10-year-old kid, and the horses would always just go really nicely for her in in her hands, like with her hands. They just always went really nicely. This is a long time ago. Yeah. And I just was talking to her and I said, oh, you've got really good hands. She goes, oh, does it? Do I? And I go, who taught you about that? And she goes, I don't know. Someone just told me I'm not to move, so I don't. So she she taught me still hands. She yeah. taught me the power of still. There was I, bloody, you know, I'm like. Vibrating and. <laughs> doing that. And yeah. her, right, she showed me, she just like, would put her hands there and then she'd just be quiet. So the horse, strangely enough, was able to find the quietness really, yes. really easily. Mm. So, of course, yeah, they went around, horse went around a bit funny for a few minutes, but then it just weren't, she was so consistent in her hands that the horse mm. just went, oh, that's comfortable. Yeah. And they always went beautiful for her. And that was a 10-year-old kid. Why? Because someone told her to do something. So she just did it and didn't question it. She didn't get annoyed by stuff. She just kept the hands there and eventually the horse just went nice. Yeah, cool. You wait yeah. for the horse. You don't, I was too busy trying to make it. She just yeah. waited. Yeah, here I am, and the horse kind of found the sweet spot. <laughs> and there you go. So that's the wisdom of a 10-year-old. She just yeah. waited. She didn't know she was doing that, but someone just told her that you don't move your hands. And so guess what? She didn't. Yeah, there you go. Before, yeah. when you were talking about people challenging your ideas, you actually challenged me on something, and it is something I have taught and, and maybe in the process of changing how I teach it, and that is um, when horses 
quote unquote, release through yawning, licking and chewing, um, you know, lowering the head, those sorts of things, shaking the neck and relaxing a back leg, all those things. And I would love for you just before we wrap up to elaborate on that a little bit, just because it is, you know, it's a huge thing in the horsemanship world. Yeah, look, it's massive. Um, yeah, so I went really into all that. Oh, man. I, and, in fact, I blame myself for writing some blogs about it that kind of inspired some people that then it blew out of proportion. Okay, so I went into it, all the kind of stress gestures and the whole calming signals. So I won't go there. That'll be another 16 podcast yeah. <laughs> about calming signals. Yeah. Um, and then I actually discovered that it actually wasn't that important. Hmm. When we work horses they exhibit stress, mm -hmm. right? They do. They yeah. get stressed. And when they're allowed to rest, the, the stress comes off, you know, then they go up and down. And, mm -hmm. and um, but it doesn't actually, just judging what a horse does when it's standing still is not the judge of how it feels about what you're asking it to do. It's when it's in motion. So, yeah, they leak and chew and, well, yawn. I'm yawning something I can go on about a lot because it's kind of over I don't believe it is a release at all well it is a release but it doesn't mean that the what's making it angsty is gone right yeah. it just means that it's being you know it's experience it's having a, a clash it's motivation inside it's being clashed of wanting to do something but knowing it's got to do another you know mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. it's releasing that but the thing is it's just don't focus on the yawn focus on the yeah it's yawning because there's something inside it there's a motivational clash yeah. um anyway I go on. So what I learn is like, yeah, I can, I can be all academic and tell you all about this gesture and that gesture and it's doing this now and the theories of this are that and that and looking at its eye, it's triangulating. But it's what it does and how it moves and does what you're asking it to do, like how its thoughts are when it moves and how it moves, that's actually more important than if it licked and chewed. Mm. Because, because what happens, you get the performing really well and all those other things are really good. They do lick and chew and they let down. Yeah. But they can feel really bad about it and still lick and chew. Yes. So licking and chewing is not the gold. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a red herring. Yeah. Total red herring. Mm. It's just like if you focus on getting this really good, that's, that just comes. But if you focus on that, that other thing can be, be really bad. So I don't, um, I, I'm not a fan of the concept of calming signals. Mm -hmm. Now, people have to understand that calming signals is a theory, a theory that came from dogs, okay, mm -hmm. the dog, dog trainers, and it's not accepted by many good, excellent, fabulous dog trainers. They don't mm -hmm. accept it. They like me and they go, it's just a sign that the dog is, was stressed, right? The physiological things that are coming out, they're not, they're not done consciously to mm -hmm. communicate. Mm -hmm. They're signs of the physiology inside. Yeah. So when a horse does something, like when you work it and it looks away and, and stuff like that, it's saying it's, it's stressed and, yeah, it would probably like you to go away and it probably would much prefer being in the field, like in the paddock, without you anywhere near it doing what it wants. But you're there to educate it, to communicate with it, okay? Yeah. And so it's not the horse consciously doing that. It's just the horse telling you how it feels. It's not 
it, it's not that they make it out that it's the horse talking and telling you to do something. It's not. It's telling you how it feels, mm-hmm. but it's not the best one necessarily to judge what you should be doing. That's your job. You're the yeah. human. You're the human with your intent and your plan and your technique and your control of that animal's well-being. Mm-hmm. Don't go thinking it's that. So, yeah, so I don't, I used to go on about the body language and gestures and you'll find lots of blogs that I've written on it, but it's the red herring in the, in the, uh, in the mix. Focus on how the horse is performing. Like watch that. Be blown mm-hmm. away by that lovely soft walk-off and those relaxed muscles and that, uh, come in the, and that listen, listen to their hoofs on the, the hooves on the ground. Is it soft or is it heavy? You know, watch it. Can you, it's got staccato movement or is it soft? That means something, not that licking and chewing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a letdown. Yeah, it is. But that other thing can be really crap. Mm. Hopefully that's refreshing for people to hear because I know that some people were like, oh my gosh, my horse didn't yawn today. I'm a terrible trainer. <laughs> Yeah, good. Your horse should stop goddamn yawning. If you're a good trainer and your horse actually really good with this, shouldn't. And that, look, you're a physiotherapist, right? Yeah. Um, and that whole thing about, so the whole release of the yawn during horse massage thing, because that's where it comes from, right? Because I went and did a whole certificate on bone therapy. Remember that? Because my horse was anxious. So remember yes. that. <laughs> right. And I really celebrate the yawn and the release, right? Well, when I'm being worked on, it's normally painful, but it's not having to do something. And, and I asked my massage therapist, I said, are you looking to see whether I yawn? <laughs> and she went like, why would I want you to yawn? And I said, well, the horse massage therapist people want me to y- want horses to yawn. And they say it means that, that they've given me a release. She goes, no, I want a release, but I'm feeling it here in your, in your muscles your and your body. no. I don't want you necessarily to yawn. And so my personal beliefs, I'm not happy to be wrong, but my theory is <laughs> that, you know, I, I yawn terribly before I start doing exercise and Pilates and the gym and stuff like that. And I yawn terribly when I used to be driving to work and I yawn terribly <laughs> when I was in meetings, right? I yawn terribly when I'm in situations that I have to be in so I'm being obedient by being in them. But if I had a choice, I wouldn't be there. And that's the motivational conflict in my head. Mm. So when I see <laughs> yawn, they are releasing that there, but it means that's there. They've got a conflict inside them. Interesting, yeah. So I don't see it as a good thing. I don't see it as a bad thing either. Yeah. I just see it as like, you know what, today, horse, this is this is a boring meeting for you that you're having to go to, right? You're not necessarily embracing it. So, and I don't, and I don't feel really, that's another thing. I don't feel really bad about that because it's fair enough. That's like my boss at work getting all offended that I was yawning on the way to work or yawning in the meeting when he wants me to love work. And it's like, man, I love being at home. I'm perfectly at peace with horses. Like if they had a choice going horse, Hey, would you like to like, you know, come along for a ride with me or would you like to hang under a tree with your friends? That is like saying to someone, hey, would you like to go home and hang out with your family and, uh, you know, sit on the lounge and watch your favourite show or would you like to come to work with me? (laughs) And for them to go, you know what, I'd really like to hang out with my family. You're not going to get offended by that. But if you have a good, really good working relationship with them and you're coming to work and you're engaged and you're in it and then you respect the fact that they love their life back in the paddock, 
Yeah. You know, that's how it is. Yeah. So I don't get offended by the yawning, but I don't, you know, have this massive celebration that yeah. they yawned. Yeah. Love real. Yeah. I'll normally know that if I've got a really resistant, negative minded horse that's used to fighting, mm-hmm. right? That when they yawn, I know I've hit obedience stage. So I know it means something then. I know the but I know the horses reside, they've gone to, they've gone. I've got it. I've, you know, they've got to, they've got obedience level. I just don't want yeah. to but with a horse that's being that's learned to be very resistant or whatever, I know I'll get yawns when I and I know that means something that I'm on the path, but I'm yeah. not gonna celebrate it because I know I've just made them go, damn it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely love your honesty, Shelley. And before we open another can of worms, let's wrap up. So tell us where our listeners can find out more about you and what you offer. Yep. So you can find out about me on my website, which is calmwillingandconfidenthorses.com.au. I've also got a Facebook group under the same name. And so on my website, you'll find access to my courses and my 6 billion blogs where you can find details of all the rabbit holes I've been down to and a lot of articles there that might want you to write me hate mail. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I think it now. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a great chat and I feel like there's still so much we could talk about and I'm going to be on your podcast soon. So I hope (laughs) And a therapy, yes. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions from today's show, suggestions for future episodes, or just want to reach out and say hi, I would love to connect with you on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses. Remember to also register for my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com.